Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I think you're going to enjoy our conversation with today's guest, Amber Smith. Amber and I have known each other for a while, having had some overlap in politics. We have some mutual friends. She's really savvy. She's a New York Times bestselling author of the book Danger Close. And she has a really fascinating article, as I alluded to yesterday, in Real Clear Defense, which is part of the Real Clear kind of news conglomerate. And she kind of waded into this new pilot program to help combat high-intensity wildfires that is being pioneered by the Department of Defense employing artificial intelligence. And to me, this is really fascinating because there's a great conversation about wildfire mitigation efforts. And I think what Amber wrote about is going to be probably discussed and even experimented more with. I think people can be comfortable with this type of AI. Other types of AI kind of make me doubtful. But what she discussed in our conversation, I think will get you to think very creatively about how to mitigate high intensity fires like the fires we see out west. And here is Amber's bio. Amber Smith flew into enemy fire in some of the most dangerous combat zones in the world. One of only a few women to fly the Kiowa Warrior helicopter whose mission, armed reconnaissance, required its pilots to stay low and fly fast perilously close to the fight. Amber deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan as a member of the elite 217 Cavalry Regiment, part of the legendary 101st Airborne Division, the Screaming Eagles. She rose to pilot and command and air mission commander in the premier Kiowa unit in the army, repeatedly flying into harm's way during her 2005 and 2008 deployments. Like I mentioned, she is the author of the best-selling book, Danger Close. Amber also served in the Trump administration early on, as the deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Outreach in Public Affairs, and she also was a senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense for matters related to strategic outreach, community relations, corporate business and stakeholder engagement, policy outreach, entertainment, film, and scripted and non-scripted documentaries and series, national sports leagues, partnerships, special outreach events, digital and social media. She's lived a very fascinating life, serving the country as a commentator, newsmaker, author, And I love that we were able to have some crossover with her industry, conservation. So I think you guys are going to really like what Amber has to say. Make sure you connect with her. Enjoy. Amber, it is so good to have you on the podcast and catch up. I am so thrilled for you to talk about your article as well. Thanks for having me on, Gabrielle. It's great to be on your podcast. I'm a big fan. Yes. And you've been all over the country in recent years and you have a really fascinating background. You served in the military, you've been a media commentator, you run your own business. 
and you're quite the traveler. So before we talk about your really fascinating article in Real Clear Defense, talk about your background. So I'm a former U.S. Army Kiowa Warrior Helicopter. It's a piloting command, air mission commander, served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I was with the 101st Airborne Division for my entire time of service. Uh, I am the author of a book called Danger Close, which is a memoir about my time in service. Uh, I have worked in national security, defense, um, communications for a while now, and uh, was also the deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Outreach. Um, So really in this national security defense world um, for some time. And separate from your work, you are a fan of the national parks. I loved following you and your family's travels to all the different parks. So where were some places you checked out and why do you like the national parks? So, yes, so we're a military family and we had the opportunity to travel across America and we chose to see America. We had about, um, we took sort of an extended leave and we did about um, 45 days, I want to say. And we traveled from Virginia all the way to Northern California and we took the Northern route uh, up into South Dakota and um, into Wyoming and Montana and up into Idaho and Washington and then down the coast into California. And it was just, I had done it when I was a child. I had done like a cross country road trip before, but seeing it as an adult, the way that we got to was just, it was such a surreal experience to see the vastness that this country has to provide. And then the national parks, um, you know, we saw so many um, we went to the Badlands, we went to the Black Hills, we went to Yellowstone, of course, um, Grand Tetons, um, Redwoods. We went like to so many places, Yosemite. But even after all of the places that we saw, we were like, all right, we want to do it again. And so we actually ended up getting to do another trip. And we sort of did the southeast part of the U.S. Uh, from you know, started in Northern California, headed um, across towards Reno through Nevada, and then um, hit Utah, went down to Zion, and we went to Lake Powell and Grand Canyon. Um, And it has just been an incredible couple of years to get to travel with the family and get to um, see those sites. Because once you do it, like you can see photos and you're like, wow, that's really beautiful. Um, but until you get there and you see it with your own two eyes and you see just the uh, surrealness of uh, of the beauty of America, um, it, it's just completely different being there in person. It absolutely is. And do you have any outstanding parks you have not visited that are on your radar? That I have. I want to go to Arches in eastern Utah. We didn't make it there and I definitely want to go to. I don't know if that's like the official name, but. Yeah, it is. I went there. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, we definitely want to go there. We did not get enough time in Zion, so we will be going back there as well. Um, but I mean, you could make that argument for pretty much every national park you go to. You're like, oh, we didn't get to spend enough time there. Like, um, same for Yellowstone. Like, I feel like you could plan multiple trips, and each one will be completely different. Like the the way you travel there, the way you stay. 
um, the different hikes and exploring and animals that you see and all the wildlife that's there different times of year. So, uh, you know, like it'll be a continuation of the trip. One place you'll have to add in your new state is Big Bend National Park. I don't know if you've gone there, but there is a cool assortment. I think it's quite a bit from where you're residing, but it's like, I think it's kind of close. I mean, it shares a border with Mexico kind of, but it's still U.S. territory, but really fascinating wildlife. It kind of looks like a blend of the Grand Canyon and a few others, like it's an amalgamation of it, but everyone has told me you have to go there. So I'm going to tell you to go there, even though I haven't gone there yet, since it's close to your backyard, relatively speaking. We will. Like now that we're like settled and we have a little bit more time, we're going to start planning some trips. So we will for sure add that to our list. While you don't necessarily dabble in conservation or natural resources policy, obviously your specialty is defense. I really was struck by your article in Real Clear Defense and it's titled AI as Wildfire Support. And you have a tagline that's called, it's time to leverage defense industry capabilities to modernize how we fight forest fires. So what led you to write about this and what is the significance behind this new um, kind of national wildfire coordinating group that is under the umbrella of the Department of Defense? So there's a couple things. First of all, what what caught my eye about it was um, that, you know, DOD had joined the National Wildfire Coordinating Group um, as a member of its executive board, um, and that there was the connection of DOD realizing that they had something to offer um, when it comes to fighting wildfires. Um, DOD has priceless experience, capabilities, skills, um, in defending our nation, in what it is to protect our nation. Um, and so it is time that they use those skills, capabilities, and mindsets, and they shift them and they help out different firefighting entities um, with some of those skills and experience and capabilities to, you know, federal, state, local, tribal, and give them what they have learned. It's only going to help sort of modernize both the offensive and defenses um, capabilities within the wildfire fighting sector. Um, If you spend any time in, you know, Northern California, Nevada, Oregon, um, wherever these like uptick in these massive wildfires have been, um, you understand just how important it is for them to modernize. Um, Because when I really dug in with some of this research it was that it was lacking. Um, They were still fighting fires um, in, and it needed like the entire industry needed to be modernized. And we spend all of this money into defense technology and defense innovation. Um, And some of it's, you know, a lot of it, I should say is dual use technology. Like, yes, it has a defense purpose, but it can also have other commercial use purposes as well. Um, And so artificial intelligence, AI is, is one of those. So when I found out about sort of the collaboration between the two entities and like uh, the defense um, sort of part of it, I thought, you know, this is a fantastic way to modernize an industry that is really needing a new innovative path forward to fight these fires. And you write in your article that data from satellites, software-enabled AI can predict the location, speed, and direction of fire-prone conditions. Could you talk about this AI algorithm and how it can help track it better than what is already existing? 
in the technology space or what they currently use to help identify and, and stop and mitigate yeah, wildfires? So sure. So they do a lot of sort of old fashioned fire mapping. And that means literally going up in an airplane and someone physically drawing out the current conditions of a fire. And if you think about how much time that takes um, for somebody to get in an aircraft, all of the pre-flight things that come and safety checks prior to taking off in an aircraft, um, and then ensuring you have all the proper equipment, and then you're you're drawing out this this fire mapping with whatever tools you have available at the time. Um, that takes considerable amount of time. When you have these wildfires, speed is everything. Um, and AI cuts that down into minutes where you have somebody taking, you know, hours upon hours to get this information. You introduce AI that can do these fire mappings and uh, predict the location, the speed, the direction, uh, uh, the, the conditions um, and predictions of these fires. And you have that data in minutes compared to hours, um, if not days, to some of these the other ways they're doing these fire um, mapping. Um, so it was sort of old fashioned way of doing something. And AI is very prevalent in so much of our lives today, not just the defense industry. It's in everything. Um, anything electronic or like everything has AI in it. And so, um, it's well past due that we sort of focus on this existing technologies and tools that are available to, um, to prevent these wildfires and it, and it gives the people who are physically fighting them on the ground, the aviation assets, everybody, it gives them the time necessary to prevent them from growing into these massive out of control fires that they basically just have to try to manage instead of um, put out and prevent them from growing into the size that, you know, you, when you see the wildfires on the news that are destroying, you know, tens of thousands of acres and producing billions and billions of dollars of damage, not to mention destroying wildlife, uh, infrastructure, personal property, um, and, and really wreaking havoc in the region. It really does take a toll when these high intensity fires just run wild and there's no management, and it also leads to more emissions, as you noted. And you said that it's kind of been test piloted um, with NVIDIA and Lockheed Martin. They worked with the Forest Service and Colorado Division of Fire Prevention and Control. So they have the first AI lab for predicting and responding to wildfires. Yeah, I was so um, happy to see that because that's forward thinking, that's innovative thinking, using that sort of dual use technology. And they work so much with the Defense Department already that they have. Um, AI that uses that like digital twin technology, basically like real world conditions. They're able to um, use that to figure out um, and, and make predictions of the fire based on the environment. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's uh, I hope that it's a project, you know, that continues to gain, gain more traction um, just because of what I mentioned about, the damage that's inflicted. Um, these aren't small time fires, um, but they could be if they're able to use this um, technology to keep them small 
And the only way to do that is through speed. And that's what AI gives you. Um, it gives you that advantage of getting ahead of the curve, which is in like real time situations. That's what matters the most because once, once it grows into something that's out of control and not containable, then all you're doing is trying to like suppress it, trying to manage it the best you can while it's, you know, blowing through towns while it's like the, all of the health conditions that come with fighting a fire. I drove through Shasta in, um, the fall of 2021 and the fire had already passed through. It was like on the other side of, we were going up the I-5 corridor and it was like, you couldn't even step outside of your car because it was like breathing in a campfire smoke. It was that thick and dense and it, and the fire was, you know, not right next to us. It had already passed to the other side. Um, and you you could not, like, we got out of there as fast as we could. We basically just spent the night and left. But the air quality was so terrible. And we, obviously, were just passing through. Like, the people who actually live there, it is horrible for their health. Absolutely horrible. Yeah, I was in Montana in August 2021. And there wasn't even a fire in Montana then. It was coming from California, all that smoke and that ash. And you could still feel that you know, sensation. You're like, oh my gosh, this is hard of breathing. It's extremely difficult, even from miles away. And I know sometimes here on the East Coast, I didn't know this until I moved here, um, that you can even see smoke as far east as Virginia and DC from the West, which is so interesting oh, wow. given how yeah. impactful these fires are, um, given how high intensity they are. But um, aside from this kind of initial project, have you heard or in your research seen where they're also testing out these AI labs in other states? Uh, I haven't. This is fairly, at least like my connection to it, um, is fairly recent. So I haven't done any fo uh, follow-up research to see like the current status um, or if like specific states are moving forward. I hope that they are because that's how I think most of this is going to happen. Like there is obviously like federal lands that maybe there'll be some interest is the, in there, but I think... Um, I think sort of the collaboration on the state level is going to be uh, pretty beneficial with some of this technology that they haven't been able to get their hands on. Very cool. Yeah, I hope that they do. Um, and, and maybe you can have an opportunity to talk about this if, if someone approaches you from Congress, because I bet you they're probably going to have some wildfire committee hearing sometime in the coming months, coming years. So they have to bring you on as a witness if if they do come across this at some point. Well, absolutely, because you have to think of it. If any other industry was like um, had something, some some sort of you know natural disaster event that was you know in the tens and tens of billions of dollars of damage per year, I think last year alone it destroyed over um, just destroyed over sixty one thousand acres, and it there is an average of um, oh sorry I I. I let me correct myself, 61,000 fires that impacted 7.4 million acres. So when you think about how massive that is, uh, it's like now that the technology exists and it's out there, you can't really turn your head from it anymore when it is destroying, you know, populations and towns, um, human health, wildlife, the environment. Um, it's, it needs to be a priority. It certainly does, because did you see the reports that Grand Sherman 
in Sequoia National Park was under threat when they were not managing the forest. Obviously, California has um, a severe problem with managing forests because of their policies in place. Of Gavin Newsom uh, doesn't know how to combat fires effectively, but he's starting to adopt prescribed burns a little too late. Um, but mm-hmm. seeing that imagery of like this fire-resistant foil uh, kind of blankets on these old historic sequoia trees. It doesn't have to be that way. They don't have to be vulnerable to fires, but it, it, the reckless policies have almost had these very, very sacred trees come close to destruction. It's it's unconscionable to me that they would let it that. It is. It absolutely is. And like you said, there is a way, like the um, controlled burns, like minimizing the risk of fires, that should be absolutely a proactive way to minimize these fires. And because of some state and local liberal policies that refuse to acknowledge um, that that is that is a very like beneficial and effective way to um, minimize the risk to some of these forests, especially like where you said, um, where there's these sequoias that are incredibly beautiful. And like once they're gone, they're gone. When we were in um, Yosemite, we went and saw the, the massive um trees and they were just destroyed like just like pitch black so many of them all the way up and the, there's like a historic one that you know back in the day like a wagon or a small car um could fit through that was just like the top of it was completely burned and like the fires had just like completely destroyed them it was really sad to see in person these like massive beautiful trees get destroyed like that it doesn't have to be that way, but lawmakers, unfortunately, have other plans. And then they love to say they diagnose the problem incorrectly so they can throw money at it and never fix the problem. But maybe California will come to a realization because the sequoias were really, really close to being destroyed. So, Amber, as a working mom, you're an inspirational woman. I've known you for several years. We have a lot of mutual friends. How do you think um, getting your kids, you know, from personal experience, how important is it to get kids in the outdoors? Because I know you love going outdoors to all these different parks and nature settings. And how is it important? And and why is it important rather to get young kids out there? Because we see a lot of problems with technology, with other temptations, things of that sort. And I think the outdoors is a great counterbalance. Do you agree with that? And, And do you think more parents should be taking their kids outdoors? 100%. Like getting your kids outside, is everything. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest on a farm where when we would come home from school, we didn't go inside and sit down and watch TV or like say we're bored or we have nothing to do. Instead, we came home, we like ate a quick snack and then we, my sisters and I ran outside and we would play outside until it was dinner time um, and so on. And then in the summer times when we weren't in school, we were outside from when we woke up in the morning to like late in the evening. And like, I absolutely love that I was given that like blessing as a child of the great outdoors, getting to explore it spurs like creativity. And it's just so good for the soul to be outside and be part of that. Um, And so I grew up just thinking that was somewhat normal, like getting to spend that much time outside. Uh, And then obviously um, realized that not everybody gets to do that as I, as I, grew up, but knew that it was absolutely important and a priority for me, for my kids to get to experience that and be outside as much as possible. Big, big advocate of vitamin D, (laughs) sunlight. um, And 
Yeah. And I just want my children to see as much of America as they possibly can. I think that that's so important for kids, um, you know, to understand why America is different and why, you know, back in the day when people saw how beautiful America was and its um, rare beauties that they preserved that for us now to be able to go enjoy where people travel from all around the world to come see. Uh, But it was actually interesting when I did so much of this national park travel. um, I felt like I didn't see as many Americans as you would expect. Um, And I, I know that's like, you know, if you live in New York city, you're probably not going to go visit um, the statue of Liberty type of type of thing. But I feel like, Americans need to get out and see the beauty that, you know, this country that they live in has to offer. That was one actually net benefit. If you can think of any benefit to COVID with all the calamities that there were, it actually kind of renewed some people, not everyone's, but some people's interest in America's national treasures, as we call the National Park Service, America's best idea, and just going outdoors in general, fishing, hunting, camping, biking, hiking. So it kind of renewed for a time people's interest. Um, now they have a problem. I don't think it's a problem. I think it's great that people want to visit and they have some tools, unfortunately, like some of the time reservations could be used kind of detrimentally to keep people out of the parks, which I don't necessarily agree with with doing that. But yes, people should definitely check out what we have here. Like you said, I encounter a lot of foreigners too. It's great they come, but it's not enough of Americans who get to go and see some people like, oh, it's too rule. I don't want to do this. I don't have the time. It's so expensive or they're worried about crowds. Understandable, of course. But yeah, the these unique public spaces, you can't really find them elsewhere around the world. Like you don't see Americans going abroad and saying, I'm going to this national park while there are some nice, nice national parks over overseas, of course. But like we are really blessed. And it goes to show that if people are coming from out of the country to visit our jewels, they are, they're worth something and meaningful. Oh, absolutely. And it's a uh... I, it changes people's perspective, especially I, th- I feel like once you, you know, I lived on the East Coast for, uh, you know, over 15 years and you almost forget, like once you cross to the West side of the Mississippi, you forget how big America truly is um, until you get out there and you drive it and you see, and it's, uh, it's incredible. Like I, I, how do you describe it? You you can't describe it until you go and see it. Um, but it's just something about um, getting to drive through, you know, sort of like real old fashioned America that is just good for the soul to to do that. It really is. And to get outside of the city because it can be a slog on your psyche and really depress for you. Sure. <laughs> yes. But there's so many green spaces too, even in cities now, like you can go, I know in the middle in, in flyover country, which is a beautiful underappreciated part of the country, whether you're in the Dakotas or as far South as Texas, Southwest, what have you, you can even enjoy like green spaces, which I appreciate cities doing now. So you can even kind of have like a wild experience a little closer to the city now and, and even go like within an hour and find a place that's like off the beaten path. And, and you need that. You need the the blue mind to feel like at ease when you're by water and you need the green spaces to feel tranquility. And yeah, people don't get enough of it. That's why we have too many people who are angry in politics, I think, because they don't spend enough time outdoors. <laughs> I think so too. And it's just something that like people don't often 
prioritize in their life. Like they'll prioritize like other elements of health or, or whatever, but it's like, it has being outside, um, has so many health benefits. And I think sometimes people, when they get caught in the grind, kind of forget about that. Um, and then once you get out in it, it's, it's like, oh yeah, you know, this is just like, if you go on like the shortest hike, like you said, on, on, uh, a green space in near a city, um, even something as convenient as that, um, you know, you don't have to go to a national park to get, to get that, the benefits of being outside and being in nature. Absolutely. And Amber, if people want to follow you, read your musings, support your work, get in touch with you, where would you like to send them to? So on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, you can follow me at Amber Smith USA at Amber Smith USA, or you can head to my website, officialambersmith.com. Wonderful. This has been such a fun conversation and I'm a big fan of yours too. I love seeing your stuff and it was really cool to follow you and your work at the Department of Defense and, and follow your travels and social media is beautiful where we can stay connected. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this really fascinating tactic to combat high intensity wildfires. I hope you can come back on again. Well, thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation and I appreciate the things that you focus on your in your podcast. It's very important. So thank you for what you do as well. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.